University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation, and today Nick is out of town, so I'm excited to share the mic with our good friend and the creative consultant for our show, Sarah Claudie. Hi, it's a pleasure to join you, Thomas. And I can only hope my voice is half as soothing and podcasty as Nick's. <laughs> Sarah is also an active duty naval officer and is currently completing the second year of her Master of Public Policy here at Harris. Sarah, you're also a fellow at the Harris School's Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts, which is a really cool new initiative here at the University of Chicago. That's right, Thomas. So the Pearson Institute was founded in 2015 as an academic hub for data-driven conflict studies. So you're right, I'm one of 26 Pearson fellows and scholars. Each of us is an MPP or PhD candidate with a particular interest in all types of conflict around the world. Um, personally, my interests are at the intersection of climate change and defense policy. And luckily, the major themes of thank you for your service have melded well with my own personal policy interests. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. And one of those major themes of this series is the idea of deference. Specifically, one of the paradoxes that keeps emerging in our conversations and our research is that while the U.S. has a civilian-controlled military, the general public tends to defer to uniformed members of the armed forces on setting national security policy. Americans, in general, really trust the U.S. military to make those decisions for them. Right. And that doesn't necessarily sound too alarming, until you also look at the growing cultural divide between the U.S. armed forces and the rest of society, what we call the civil-military gap. The military enjoys extremely high levels of trust and public confidence, but a growing body of research casts doubt on whether that trust is actually grounded in substantive knowledge of the military and what it does, or if there's another explanation for this phenomenon. Ultimately, we wonder... Is the growing civil-military divide eroding the constitutionally intended civilian oversight of the military? We're excited to feature a two-part interview we conducted with two political science researchers from the University of Minnesota who are studying that exact question, and who are more broadly conducting a lot of valuable research on American attitudes towards national security policy. Dr. Ronald Krebs is the Beverly and Richard Fink Professor of Liberal Arts and a professor of political science at the University of Minnesota, and the author of several books, including the award-winning Narrative and the Making of U.S. National Security. He is also an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Dr. Krebs sits on the editorial boards of Security Studies and the Journal of Global Security Studies, and has been published in Foreign Policy Magazine, Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, and numerous other media outlets. And Mr. Robert Ralston is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Minnesota, where he studies international security and civil military relations. 
His research mainly focuses on the domestic side of great power politics and on the politics of military service, and he teaches courses on the rise of China as a global power. Dr. Krebs and Mr. Ralston, along with Aaron Report from the University of Cambridge, recently published an article in Foreign Policy magazine titled, Americans' Blind Faith in the Military is Dangerous. We reached out to the two of them to ask if they'd be willing to talk with us about the ideas presented in that article, as well as the underlying research. Dr. Ronald Krebs and Mr. Robert Ralston, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, so, Dr. Krebs, you're a professor who's been working in this field of study for 16 years. And Mr. Ralston, you're just getting started in your academic career. We're curious to hear from both of you how you originally became interested in studying national security policy. Well, why don't I, uh, why don't I start things off? First of all, thank you so much for having both of us on the program. It's a great question. You know, it's sort of one of those very basic questions. It's both very easy and very difficult. Let me tell you sort of the two sort of personal stories in a way that, that I think tell a little bit about why I became interested in this. The first is a very personal story. I'm the child of immigrants. My parents are both uh, survivors of the Holocaust. And my father was a deeply conflicted liberal who worked for 40 years in the defense industry. So on the one hand, he thought government spending uh, was very good. On the other hand, he wished it wasn't in defense. On the other hand, he needed it to be in defense in order to keep his job. And so the defense industry and uh, national security policy were, for very personal reasons, both economic and in terms of personal narrative, never far from the table at which I grew up. But I think really crucial for me was that I came of age, and now as you've already revealed that I've been in this business for 16 years, people can calculate, that I came of age just as the Cold War was coming to an end. The Berlin Wall came down. Amidst my high school career, the Soviet Union collapsed just as I was finishing my high school career and beginning my college career. And many people reacted to the end of the Cold War, as we have now been reminded with the recent passing of George H.W. Bush, with the great dreams that we were on the verge of a new, new and more peaceful and more cooperative world order. It was a time of great hope in the, uh, early, late in the early 1990s. But I perceived somehow intuitively that this was really overly optimistic. And so uh, I gravitated immediately toward questions of the use of force and national security policy. Cool. Mr. Ralston, how about you? Uh, well, my story is actually it's not nearly as interesting as Ron's, but the second part of Ron's story about growing up in a, during a formative sort of time in world politics resonates with me as well. I, I can probably trace my interest back to witnessing 9-11 and the subsequent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq um, as a high schooler and as someone who was thinking about attending college. And when I started uh, my undergraduate career in international relations, it really sort of piqued my interest in studying these topics more systematically and coming up with my own ways of studying national security policy. That was always something that interested me as an undergraduate. And so I've just sort of continued on from there. And so that's how I came about it. In your article, you give a brief summary of the classic model of civ-mil relations. For our listeners who might not be familiar, what is that prevailing theory, and why does it matter? Uh, great question. You know, in the early years of the Cold War, people, as the U.S., what would come to be known as the military-industrial complex, 
really got going, people started to become newly attentive to the implications of what it would mean to have a very large, wealthy, and powerful military. And how do you maintain a democracy when you have a military that necessarily is spanning the globe, that has uh, an organization composed of millions of people? The central problem of civil military relations is that it has come to be understood is the problem of who guards the guardians. How do we ensure that those very individuals who are responsible for maintaining the safety and security of this nation and the safety and security of all of us, that they themselves do not become a, an utterly unaccountable elite? And this was a central problem in the 1950s, and a uh, young Harvard professor named Samuel Huntington took this on in a foundational text called The Soldier and the State. And Huntington's text, which continues to be widely read, um, Huntington's text laid out what today is known as that kind of normal theory of civil-military relations, which says that the way in which we ensure that the military remains, can ensure both our security but remain in its proper place, is by promoting military professionalism, that it is the responsibility of the military, that we have to give to the military their area of expertise, which is tactics and operations, but it is to the military must leave it to civilians to design the goals toward which military force is put and ultimately even the strategy. That is, how is it that military force can be most effectively used to further those ends? Huntington's view, which is today sort of widely accepted in what is taught in all the military academies as sort of the standard view, Huntington's view was not, of course, universally accepted. There was a great military sociologist at the University of Chicago named Morris Janowitz, who laid out a view that, in fact, the best way to ensure that the military would remain loyal to democracy was by, in fact, deeply politicizing the military, that is, teaching them the virtues of democracy. But that was not the sort of the standard view. Why is it um, that, why is it, would you say, that Huntington's view became the standard view and other views like Janowitz uh, went into yeah, the background? I, I think guess. that Janowitz, I think that what really uh, turned, the, turned the tables there was an understanding as people looked, um, especially in the developing world in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, in that post-colonial world and saw a world rife with coup d'etat. And coup d'etat that were conducted by the military in the name of the nation. These were deeply, and so they looked at Janowitz and this is the danger. If you politicize the military and they see a corrupt civilian elite, they will say, we know better than the civilians, and they will choose to take over governments from them. Uh, and so I think there was a general sense that this is not the direction that we wanted to go, and that therefore the Huntingtonian view was a safer understanding. Today, where you hear critique of the Huntingtonian view, it does not come from that old Janowitzian perspective that we need to really, in fact, get the military more politically committed to democracy. You, in fact, hear the critique from the other side. And this isn't a critique from the left. It's a critique even from the right. Elliot Cohen, a longtime Republican national security hand, wrote a, uh, a wonderful book critiquing that prevailing theory of civil-military relations where he argued that in fact, we need civilians, there's no inherent reason, especially in the modern military, there's no inherent reason that civilians need to leave very much of a 
uh, of a realm of autonomous expertise for the military at all. Um, Cohen's view, looking back over the history of civil-military relations, was that sometimes civilians who get involved in tactics and operations have better judgment than the military, the professional military. And he would draw upon examples like Lincoln, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. None of these, Franklin Roosevelt, these individuals did not particularly to uh, give a great deal of autonomous space to the military. Um, the question that you asked earlier is why, why is this good? Why do we care about civil-military relations? It takes us back to that question about who guards the guardians. That what is the military, the fear of an unaccountable military elite is what drives the theory, the, any theory of civil-military relations. That what is the military's claim that its judgment should transcend that of civilians. Um, in response to our piece, I've received, as you can imagine, a number of emails asking me, do civilians really make better decisions systematically than the military? I think that the jury is out on that, but the real question is, better by whose lights? Who gets to decide that those decisions are better? If our civilian leaders make decisions that we, as the mass populace, deem to be poor ones, and those are salient and really costly decisions, well, we get to vote them out of office. But how do we hold the military accountable if we give the military a great, if we're very deferential to the military? It's a very difficult thing, and that's why this really, that's why getting this right, if you will, debating these questions about civil-military relations really matters. Robert, we'll go to you for this next question. Um, so you and Dr. Krebs are in the midst of researching the American public's attitudes towards military and civilian leadership, um, as we've talked about. And we were wondering if you could tell us about this research project and what motivated you to pursue it. That's a great question. And, and what Ron just referenced as being this really fundamental question uh, about how deferential the public is uh, to the military, we don't really have good survey data on this. And there was one exception done and that is uh, by Corey Shakey and the Hoover Institution in 2013. And that data was featured in a foreign policy article and a book alongside General Mattis. And the, uh, Corey Shakey found that 41% of the public believed that the president should manage the broad objectives but leave the details of military plans to the generals. In other words, this distinction between whether to use force or whether to engage in force and the sort of tactical and operational decisions that we think the military should be rightly the ones conducting. And so what we did is we conducted a survey uh, of almost 2,500 respondents through this company called Lucid. And the sample itself is nationally representative on things like gender, age, education, and race. And we asked respondents to two different questions. And these questions sought to get at this difference between whether or not people are deferential to the milita military about whether to use force. And the second one emphasized tactical and operational decisions. So the first question we asked respondents was, when considering the use of military force abroad, we should first and foremost trust the judgment of US military leaders regarding whether to deploy U.S. forces. And the second question was set up the same way, but instead of asking them whether to deploy U.S. forces, we asked them about 
how to use U.S. forces on the battlefield. So when considering the use of military force abroad, we should first and foremost trust the judgment of U.S. military leaders regarding how to use U.S. forces uh, on the battlefield. And what we found was that nearly 70% of Americans agreed to some extent that the country should defer to the military on whether to use force. And so that's the strategy question. That's the question that uh, really, and, and sort of the classic theory of civil military relations should be left up to civilian leaders. And just 17% disagreed to some extent with that premise that military leaders should have say and whether to use force. So Mr. Ralston, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh -huh. um, did you find that result particularly surprising? Um, and can you talk a bit about what were maybe the more detailed findings that you found most surprising in the study? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. It was surprising. Because, and in fact, a lot of the reaction we've been getting to this on Twitter is kind of shock that people who study civil military relations sort of assumed that the public wouldn't be nearly as deferential um, regarding uh, whether to use uh, force in sort of the strategic context. And it wasn't necessarily surprising to us that the people that were more likely to endorse deference were those that you'd kind of expect demographically. They were more likely to be male, more likely to be conservative, more likely to be Republican. These are uh, conservatives and Republicans generally tend to trust the military more, and so that wasn't particularly surprising. But military veterans were also more likely to, to endorse this idea of deference to the military, which in some ways was surprising if you think about sort of uh, folks in the military sort of understanding their role and, and sort of being indoctrinated by, uh, you know, their, their training and their upbringing in the military to kind of see this as uh, sort of the right way to go. And so that was probably the most surprising of the findings for me personally. I don't know if Ron has any other surprising findings um, coming out of this, but the military veteran one was really quite striking to me. At least it was, seemed problematic um, that military veterans felt this way. But it also makes sense in the sense that they're invested and they have this close tie, obviously, with the military as being members of it, that they might feel deferential as well. Dr. Krebs, what I, I about you? I would just add uh, that we did find, you know, one thing that was not surprising, right, which would have been expected based on the normal theory of civil military relations, is that we did find that Americans were more deferential in the arena of tactics than they were in the arena of strategy. Uh, but the part that was surprising, right, we're used to seeing, we all know and have known for a long time, that Americans trust the military more than they do other institutions. They have a more generally favorable attitude toward the military. Those are the general questions that surveys normally ask. Those surveys have not delved more deeply into this question of trust them about what. And we did think that we would see a much bigger gap between trust on questions of whether to use force than how to use force. And it isn't that Americans didn't behave perfectly in accord with the traditional theory of civil military relations that surprised us. It was the extent of that, uh, of that deference. And the other thing I would say is that while what Robert said is true, men were generally more deferential than women, conservatives more deferential than liberals, Republicans more deferential than Democrats. The part that was surprising was how much in general this was a consensus position 
across virtually every cleavage and divide in the American body politic. Yes, conservatives were more deferential than liberals, but liberals were really deferential also. Men were more deferential than women, but women were also really deferential. We didn't have nearly the stark divides that we often have when you ask people generally, do you think the United States should use force? Then we see women being really anti-militarist and men being much more gung-ho. Here, the gaps were generally much, much smaller than we are used to seeing and that we would have expected. So why do you think public trust in the military has expanded to this point? We also noticed that this is a huge change from the Vietnam era when there was very little public trust in the military. So what has changed since then? This is a really interesting question that you asked. And one of the things I think that might help explain this is that Americans tend to distrust experts in general. There's a lot of studies out now that show that, for example, on things like climate science, that Americans don't trust experts. But it seems the one exception they make is trust in the military. And I think this may stem from sort of a broader distrust in politicians or bureaucrats or the Washington elite. And this then leaves Americans in terms of this question of whether to use force or what have you, more trusting of the military. But it may also be that the military is seen as apolitical, right? Whereas obviously the civilian leadership in Washington is anything but apolitical. The military is sort of seen as this institution that not only has a, a lot of honor and respect behind it in terms of public displays of gratitude towards the military and such stuff like that, but also that the military has traditionally tried to keep out of politics or at least uh, keep that air about them. And so I think that might be one explanation. Uh, let me just add a couple, a couple things. I think as your question noted, we used to think that maybe this was about performance. Right, opinion, trust in the military and respect for the military was very low, understandably, in the 1970s, uh, which led to the establishment of the all-volunteer force. And many people have forgotten that the all-volunteer force was essentially deemed a failure in the late 1970s. There was even serious talk about returning to the draft. Of course, that all turned around with the Persian Gulf War uh, in 1991. And the great success of the U.S. military in facing down a, facing down a tin pot dictator but a military that was thought to be the fifth, at that time, to be the fifth best military in the world. Um, so people used to think this was about performance. And obviously, it's hard to ascribe that to perform the sort of continuing trust in the military to questions of performance today. A study was recently published that said, well, there's a big partisan divide on these questions of trust in the military. And that's true. But it can't all be ascribed to partisanship and political ideology. And so one thing that I would also, I think Robert is right, that there is an apolitical stereotype of the military. Uh, but I think there has also been, for reasons that we don't fully understand, clearly a conscious effort to promote a certain mythologizing of the military. Today, we recruit our military on the basis of market incentives. And there is absolutely no question that some substantial proportion of those who sign up for military service today, of those who volunteer, do so because of the financial benefits associated with military service. And when the military does not offer sufficiently generous financial benefits, especially when the economy and the job market are humming, as they are today, they miss their quotas, they miss their targets. The uh, Secretary of the Army just uh, gave an interview along these lines and, and in fact, admitted 
This has been a real challenge for the military. The U.S. economy is humming. The job market is very tight. It is very hard for them to recruit soldiers right now. So elite, and yet we never talk about service that way. I challenge you to find a politician who talks about the military as if it were just a job. It is, we talk about our soldiers as if they were always paragons of citizenship, serving for reasons of patriotism, heroes who sacrifice on the nation's behalf. Um, one of the other questions we asked in our survey, which we did not report in this article, asked about people about why they think soldiers serve and asked soldiers why they in fact think that soldiers serve. And here we had a striking difference. The American public we discovered was about equally divided between perceptions and stories of military service that focused on intrinsic motivations, things like patriotism and duty, and extrinsic motivations, that is, things like military benefit, things like uh, financial benefits. People were about equally divided. Soldiers themselves know the real deal. And soldiers themselves, veterans were far, especially veterans of the all-volunteer force, we discovered were far more likely to say that soldiers serve for reasons of financial benefits. So we have a real, we have a strong elite rhetorical line that says over and over, these are our heroes, these are paragons of American citizens, these are citizen soldiers. Uh, and that, I think, plays a role. Now, why has the milit why have uh, politicians put forward this line? Well, that is a, a subject for that is really would uh, be really quite speculative on our part. Um, and I and I think it's something that we simply don't fully understand why this real norm has emerged that continues to reinforce this notion that our professional soldiers are citizen soldiers. It should be noted this is not a uniform around the world. Today, across the West, militaries are recruited on a, mar on a market basis. The United States is not alone in this kind of rhetoric, but it is certainly not the case that every nation put puts forward this sort of rhetoric. In Britain, for instance, they are far more likely to emphasize the professionalism of their nation's soldiers, to emphasize this is a job and a career, something you don't really hear spoken of, at least out of the mouths of American politicians. Thanks for joining us for part one of this conversation with Dr. Ronald Krems and Mr. Robert Ralston. You can find the link to their original foreign policy article in the show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast to get the latest updates about the show. Also, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Spreaker so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Nick Perezo, Haz Yano, and Alec McMillan. Special thanks to Ashwarya Kumar and Mary Martha McClay for production and scripting support. This podcast is a production of University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Sarah Claudie. See you next time. Hi, this is Jason Zukas, the host of Have You Heard? The UC3P News Quiz, a podcast where we quiz University of Chicago students on recent entertaining news stories. You can find us on any podcast platform by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P and can find out more about our upcoming live shows at facebook.com slash hyhnewsquiz. Thanks for listening.